Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Larray Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from June Cigar. My name is June Cigar, and I'm a CSH Speak Up advocate and a mosaic artist uh, for Peace by Peace, downtown Los Angeles, Skid Row. Yeah, really overcoming um, some obstacles, but I'm grateful to have this opportunity to talk about my life journey in terms of surviving homelessness. My grandparents migrated from Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, and I lived in uh, San Pedro for a while when, you know, when, when I was a little girl. Uh, and, and life was good then. Then my mom, um, she passed uh, at an early age. She was 48 years old. She had, they call it hypopoxemia, which is pretty much her respiratory system shut down. My father died in 1999, and he died with no will. Therefore, the house that I stayed in, I had people wanting to basically come after his assets. And uh, the state of California pretty much told me I had to move because the house wasn't paid for. And the house I grew up in, they pretty much sold and divided up. That was in 1998. Uh, And I think that was a time where I just didn't realize that when you lose your parents and your grandparents and your elders, it, it starts chipping away at your family structure. It chips away at your support system. And uh, my father and mom tried, but, you know, the Lord said something different. So, yeah, it was hard. If you don't have your uh, will or anything in written, the system pretty much, I'll call it the system, pretty much comes in and takes over, um, especially when there's assets and money. Have your business in order because the system is going to come in and do what they do, which is pretty much take people and you become a statistic. You, you know, uh, wealth is also handed down through family, uh, housing. Uh, my father had two houses in the same block, and he moved me and my kids in his house that I grew up in and moved down the street. But when he died, um, he had no will, and there was nothing that I could do to even fight off the people that wanted to uh take the house or take me out. I'm not sure what it was, but it was a very ugly time. And, and when someone dies, you really realize how people, where their hearts really are. I found out that my father wasn't prepared. I had to fight his girlfriend and get her from harassing me and, you know, taking the toilet seat and the clothes off his back and wallet money out of the bank. And I mean, it was a hell of a situation when it went to probate. I never thought in a million years that it would trickle down to this, you know, to that point where I, I lost everything. And then, like I said, I had younger kids at the time and pretty much had to move. I was put out of the house I was raised in, and um, that's when it started breaking down, I think, in terms of me having a place I could really, like, call home. It was a very sad time when you lose parents, when you lose your foundation and people that you can depend on, you know. So I knew I had to woman up and take care of my own self and just forged through survival. I was in survival mode, and uh, I never would have thought I would be homeless, but it could happen to anybody. It really has. Um, I ended up living with uh, my partner who was very abusive. I've always been an independent black woman. I've always worked to get what I want. I never looked out for handouts. I was taught to work and to build on what you have. After I realized that, you know what, women aren't supposed to be treated like doormats, and disrespect wasn't 
in my psyche, I wasn't about to take too many ass whoopings. So I ended up leaving. I said, I would just hit the streets and live in a house of hell, you know. It's like, uh, so I end up going a path. Um, people assisting the homeless down there on uh, Cotner and Sepulveda. I stayed there a year. I was a preschool teacher at the time. I worked for a bilingual program in South Central Los Angeles. Was able to work and then come to the shelter, women's shelter there and save my paychecks and was able to move out and get my own housing. Then I end up moving out of path and getting an apartment, and then I end up getting back into the situation with my kid's father, and I didn't realize I had cancer. I think when I left that terrible relationship and then going to the hospital and then finding out that I had a lump on my breast, I pretty much was unhoused until I got this disease cancer. And then the hospital... Thank God for Mark Ridley Thomas and Martin Luther King Hospital down there in the heart of uh, Watts. We're looking for people to house. They were looking for people that had debilitative diseases. And I guess I qualified at that point. I'm 63 years old, for God's sake. I mean, <laughs> it was almost like that social worker threw me a life raft when she said that, hey, I can help you get off the street and get you housed and get you where you need to be in terms of um, health care, in terms of being able to have a place that you know, that, that I had a key that I could turn to walk into an apartment and shut the door and feel safe. The hellacious things you see on the streets, it's like I wouldn't wish that on anybody because when there's not enough services and not enough psychologists and, and social workers that are out there to hand people or show people or guide people how to survive a, a homelessness, you find yourself in a very bad vortex, you know, and the drug use and all that. I mean, I just didn't want to be a victim of the system. I was gun-ho that I was going to survive that madness. So I was sick. I, I had uh, staged one, and um, thanks to my oncologist at Martin Luther King Hospital, Dr. Ogilvie, Dr. Clayton, and Miss Wendy, uh, who was a social worker there, it gave me an opportunity to uh, get better. And uh, I'm taking my meds now, and I'm cancer-free and remission, and I'm an artist, and life's looking a lot better than it was, uh, say, five years ago. <laughs> so I'm truly, truly blessed, yeah. My son is 30. My oldest daughter is 37. She was uh, graduated at the University of South Carolina. She moved wanting to get away from mom because of all the hell I was going through. I can't blame her. Went and she got herself educated there, and then my son's at San Diego State, and he works there. He hasn't graduated yet. He'll be all right. He's in a good place. And then my daughter, Zoe, who's 24, who graduated from Berkeley on scholarship, got a degree in U.S. Justice and Environmental Studies. She works for a mortgage bank here in New York, and she's doing big things now. So she says, Mommy, you can always come to the East Coast and be with me. She, uh, as a matter of fact, just bought a house in Hanford, Connecticut. 24 years old, African-American young woman who pulled herself up by her own bootstraps and realized that, you know what, I am who my mom says I am. I'm not a kitty cat. I'm a lioness. I have a right to the tree of life. I have an education, and I'm going to knock on doors until they open them up. And that's what she's doing. <laughs> I, <hope. laughs> I can't believe it. That's why I wear my little Cal Berkeley hat. I'm so proud. I told her, look, girl, give me a copy of that degree because my name's on it, too. I'm so proud of her. Oh, so proud of her. She's uh, quite a young lady. You plant good seeds, you get a good heart, but she's a good kid, and I'm grateful that she's standing on her own two feet, that she's a productive human being in society. You know, I, 
feel like the black community is such a pillar. I mean, I grew up during the early 60s, and I remember the first Watts riots. But the point is, is that there's a lot of churches out there that could really, like, and could do and should do more for the community besides acts for tithes. I'm just saying. Give people a hot breakfast or, or a good lunch. Give people a, a place to sleep when they're on the street. Get them off the street. Let them be able to bathe and do basic human things that people deserve to do. I think that uh, black leadership has an accountability too because we vote you in, we want support and help, but they say the work is many, but the laborers are few. I mean, I, I don't see much change. I consider myself a advocate, uh, a revolutionary when it comes to wanting to change things for women. More women I talk to outside myself, and African American particularly, I realize we all have something in common. We're all trying to survive. We are the life source. And there should be a safe place for women to go to, you know. Brutality is a bad thing. And something is learned through how you're raised. But I would hope that the churches and the clergies and people come together, not just on holiday time, but just come together to show people, give people a hand up instead of a slap down. And uh, that's what I feel. I think that the the system, <laughs> I want to say it. I was, okay, June, say it. You know, I'm speaking my heart in here. I sometimes think the system's a fraud and it's let a lot of people down. We have that many people on the street, uh, women that are just in dire straits that don't have any sense of direction. You know, the, the, the psychological impact, the therapy, the counseling, the whole traumatic experience being out there on the street, it takes years to overcome that madness. It really does. I, like I said, I'm I, 63 now, and I just want to spend the rest of these years I have to do good work and to say, you know what, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody, and that there's just help out there. You know, if I can be a light, a real light to someone that has walked that walk, uh, I want to be able to do that. So it's like one hand can't clap, one mouth can't cuss. All I know is until you get up and stand up to the system that divides us, we really find out we have more in common than we do being um, separated because homelessness shares no race, color, ethnicity, or any of that. It could happen to anybody, you know. I met a lot of people that are down there. They're great people. They just lost their homes, you know. They lost their foundation. I see people, and I go down to the art district, uh, to Skid Row Housing, uh, at least three times a week to give back because I know what the program did for me. A lot of ladies I meet from the Women's Center downtown, too. A lot of women are out there because of domestic violence. They're out there because they have no place to go, no support system. And this hard part is not just seeing that you got 65,000, maybe more, sleeping on the street, but to see women and children out there, it's very heartbreaking. It's a serious vortex, and it needs to be dealt with. I just hope that I can be a beckon of light for those that know me through the community to fight for rights, to have a decent home, a place to call home, a safe place. You may not be where I want to be, but I'm certainly glad where I am now, uh, thanks to those services that I received, you know. So, yeah, I'm grateful for that. And um, finding Mosaic Heart is kind of was a really big healing for me because I found something I had a, a niche for and I love to create. I do a lot of impressionists. I love to do faces. I love to do um, mosaics that speak life. I love to see how light reflects off glass. I love to see people's impressions when they see a piece that I've done. And when I do think about doing portraits, of, I always look for women that, that I met on the street. They have a permanent 
screw face. You could tell that there's a disheartness there, that there's something within them that's so beautiful. I try to find beauty when there ain't none. You know, I bring it out of people because I know it's there. Just being able to do self-expression, you know, self-expression, even in some of the landscapes and the big buildings, we live in a concrete jungle of downtown Los Angeles, but there are trees, that we have gardens, we can plant roses in the concrete jungle. We can make this community a better place. And that's what it's all about, galvanizing people. Empowerment is so important, giving people a hope instead of a rejection or just looking at you like you're a scorn or something. Because different people are coming from different places out there, you know. But when I go in there, I feel like I'm bringing myself, my best self, and to say that, you know what, if I can overcome, certainly you can. Or what can I do to help you? It's good to be used in that way, to be a service to mankind, a womankind, to get back. Because I never forget where I come from. We're so honored that June Cigar shared her personal story with us. Yeah, every experience of homelessness is unique. And every person who has experienced this issue has a unique perspective on the solutions and the path forward. Today's episode's about race and homelessness. We have a great interview with Monique King-Viland, who was most recently the executive director of the L.A. County Development Authority. Monique has 20 years of experience in community development. In the interview, she also talks about her experience serving on the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority Ad Hoc Committee on Black People Experiencing Homelessness. The Ad Hoc Committee produced a report in 2019 focused on reducing the number of Black people experiencing homelessness. Monique, it is such an honor to have you as our first guest on the Housing Justice Podcast. So can you start by just telling us how you came to work on community development? My mom had me at 17 in a small town uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment with my grandparents. And so my mom, my brother, and I, and eventually her husband, shared one bedroom in that two-bedroom apartment. And growing up, I remember being very pleased when I got to sleep in a bed by myself every couple of nights. That house was not great. The living environment wasn't great. Even with four working adults, both my grandparents worked at the time, my mom and um, her husband, we were still the definition of working poor. And frankly, our neighborhood in East Trenton was really the definition of blight and disinvestment. Um, I remember my grandmother getting mugged when she came home one night from her night shift at the um, shelter that she worked at, and she was badly beaten. I remember um, roaches and mice to this day. I really hate roaches and mice, but my family worked really hard and were very desperate to keep that roof over our head, even though it wasn't, frankly, the best roof. So my mother, when we had an opportunity to move, I think stayed in a domestic violence situation far longer than she should have or we should have because she was just so desperate to get a nicer roof over our heads. So when people ask me questions like how I came to the work, I like to tell people that I was really called to the work. 
I was called to the work because I don't think that any mother should have to make the choice between staying in a DV situation or having a roof over her head for her kids. I was called to the work because I don't think that any child should have to be afraid when they walk to school during the day. I was called to the work because I think that an elderly woman should be able to come home at night and be safe. I believe that home and community should be a safe haven. And that should be regardless of your race and regardless of your class. And that is my purpose. Um, and that's why I do the work. Thank you so very much for sharing that, coming from also that experience of the injustices and the disparities, I can totally relate. And so I thank you for being um, vulnerable with sharing that information with us. And I would like to know your relationship between the race and community. Mm -hmm. If you can just share with us like how that has had this journey for you and where is it today? So I've been doing um, housing, community, and economic development work for nearly 20 years. And for me, frankly, I have always felt like um, structural racism, racial inequity, and bias played a role in the work. I understood the history of structural racism, frankly, in this country and how it really manifested in government structures um, and also in government policies. So I remind people all the time, you know, think not just slavery, because that's the thing that people go back to really easily, but think Jim Crow, uh, think sharecropping, think the theft of native land, redlining, mass incarceration, the criminalization of black, walking while black, driving while black, shopping while black, and then also just the criminalization of homelessness as well. I think the damage has been done and we feel the sort of ramifications and the weight of that damage in black and brown communities across this country. I've seen it in communities that I worked in along the East Coast. I've watched and gone into conversations with change makers and policymakers to talk about getting incentives and special programs. And the conversation is always like, well, why can't they get themselves together? Why can't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Why do we need to do this extra program or this extra thing? And it's always funny. I remind people, it's like saying to someone, we're going to play Monopoly, right? But you're going to sit on the side. I'm going to play 20 rounds. I'm going to pass go and collect $200 20 different times. I'm going to buy every hotel and house. I'm going to build out the whole board while you sit and watch from the sidelines. And then when it's finally your turn, I'm going to ask you, why does it take so long for you to catch up? Why can't you just pull yourself up? Why is it not easier? It's like that understanding made me realize that we have to shift the conversation out of one of sort of incentives or handouts or hand ups. And you really have to have a conversation about the fact that all of our work has to be approached from a reparations framework. It means that you're not giving anyone anything. It's really about leveling the playing field when it's frankly been unlevel this entire time. We know that for every $100 
in white wealth in this country, black people only have $5.04, right? We know that for every one in four black households have zero or negative net worth, whereas the number is less than one in 10 for white families. Black Americans are incarcerated at five times the rate of white Americans. So when you're having conversations about living paycheck to paycheck, or frankly being one paycheck or one health crisis away from being on the streets, that's almost an inevitable conclusion when you look at the data. And what we also know is that wealth in this country is really about housing wealth. It's not just sort of financial equity. It's not just social equity. It is really based on housing wealth. And so if that makes up two-thirds of the wealth in this country, but black and brown people don't even have an entrance to the playing field, then you're naturally going to have significant inequities. So now you have people of color locked out of home ownership, black people locked out of home ownership, and so they have to rent. There's no other way to go. There are no other options. And then you look at that, and then you look at the fact that the majority of folks, for instance, for here at the LACDA, our voucher holders, more than 40% are black. So you have renters, they're voucher holders, they're trying to make their way, but then they run into a situation where no one's going to rent to them anyway. You know, the Urban Institute report this past fall said that more than 70% of landlords are not going to rent to folks with Section 8. And then that number goes up to more than 80% when you look at low poverty communities. Where is the opportunity to level the playing field? Where is the opportunity for equity? I mean, it just, it's very clear to me that we cannot have any real effort around ending homelessness and the affordability crises that we're facing in this county and in this country without acknowledging institutionalized racism, without acknowledging the policies and the programs like redlining and urban renewal that got us here in the first place. Without doing that, you can't tell people to catch up. So understanding how deep the racial disparities go and how far back in our history of this country they go, through your work, how do you level the playing field? How do you start to address this in the work you do? Well, I I should start by saying that this is always ongoing. I don't see the light, honestly, at the end of the tunnel anytime soon. Um, And I say that as a parent and as a mother of two children in color, which is also very difficult for me to say. Um, But I think first and foremost, I approach this work from a very clear factual point. And that factual point is structural racism exists, existed and continues to exist. Racial inequities exist, bias exists, and they are the root causes for the disparities that we see in both the homelessness and affordable housing crises, again, in this county, but also in this country. And that's sort of point blank, period. They just are. And I lead with that as sort of my foundation. I use that factual realization as the lens with which I approach all my work and with, frankly, how I show up in the world. And for me, what that's meant is sort of spending my career fighting for funding, fighting for incentives, fighting for resources so that specifically underserved communities in color can actually begin to sort of be empowered to change their own communities from the inside out versus having to wait for people to come. 
come in and save them. There are no saviors. We will save ourselves. That's the way that this work is really going to get done. I've also worked to diversify as much as I can all of the agencies and structures that I come in contact with. You know, I talk about this a lot, but one of the things I am most proud of is that the executive leadership team here at the LACDA is the most diverse this team has ever been in its nearly 40-year history. That is the legacy when I leave here that I will be most proud of, because I think it's really clear that you have to be thoughtful and intentional and having upfront discussions with recruiters and with your human resources people to make sure that we have people who are black leadership, who are lived experience leadership, who are black lived experience leadership, brown leadership, people who understand informed trauma care and, you know, the impact that racial trauma has on our programs and our services. Those folks need to be involved in the decision making and the discussion in order to make real change as we move forward in this world. And that has been something that has been really key to the work that I try to do and how I show up in the world. Yeah. So when you speak of the key to the work that you do, I know that you've served on the Black People Experiencing Homelessness Ad Hoc Committee. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us why that committee was put together and like what your experience has been with being on the committee? The Ad Hoc Committee on Black People Experiencing Homelessness was by far the most difficult of experiences I've had in my nearly 20-year career, but also by far the most rewarding. I think that sort of dual consciousness of that experience is, it just sort of speaks to sort of walking as a person of color in the world. Um, But being in that position, having to listen to the statistics, um, having to hear the trauma for folks who came to the listening sessions, doing all that with respect, It was difficult, but it was also incredibly rewarding because the data and the recommendations that came out of that, I think, have the potential to really change the game. And so I was honored and blessed with that experience, but it was also, it was difficult. We know and what we learned is that even though African-Americans only comprise 9% of the general population here in Los Angeles County, they comprise nearly 40% of the homelessness population. And what we saw was that there's just a persistent, persistent overrepresentation of black people experiencing homelessness. And it's not just in LA County, it's of black people experiencing homelessness around this country. So that, you know, 40%, 9% is I think 40% and 13% around the country. So we have a problem. And so the ad hoc committee was really created to begin to think about how to understand that disparity and that inequity to figure out how to address the disparity and the inequities, both in the sort of homeless delivery system, but also outside of the homeless delivery system and to develop recommendations that I think were sort of multifaceted to be able to figure out how we really help Black people experiencing homelessness in this county and in this country. One of the things I want to ask you about is oftentimes we talk about racial disparity and we talk about people of color, but the ad hoc committee was one of the first times in Los Angeles. We were very explicit Mm -hmm. that this is about Black people experiencing homelessness. This was not just about racial disparities overall. Why do you think it was so important and why did the work have a different impact? Because it was explicit 
and being about black people experiencing homelessness? I think it was the first time, and even in my career, um, as and also what I'm told is in the county, that we had a very explicit conversation about Black people experiencing homelessness, which is important because race can often be portrayed as a monolithic experience. And the fact is, it's not. You know, just like gender, it's not a monolithic experience. I mean, just like we recognize the intersectional nature of being a Black woman um, as not being the same as just being a woman, that I have dual consciousness in my roles, I think it was important to begin to understand that we were talking about Black people experiencing homelessness. And, you know, and it was also important because the numbers are different and more staggering for black people experiencing homelessness. And I had never been a part actually anywhere in my career of that type of focused discussion and a realization right at the beginning that we were going to continue to honor the fact that we were talking about black people experiencing homelessness. Now, that's not to say that there's not importance in talking about brown people experiencing homelessness or native people experiencing homelessness, but we started a very strong conversation that was very focused on black people experiencing homelessness, and we honored that in the data, we honored that in the work. And frankly, I think the recommendations that came out of it will be more powerful because they looked at the unique experience of black people experiencing homelessness, and we didn't try to treat it as sort of a monolithic, one-size-fits-all approach to solving the problem. Speaking of the recommendations, I'd love to hear the result of the ad hoc committee's work was a series of recommendations. Which recommendations really stood out to you as being the most important or just recommendations that are close to your heart? I think more than specific recommendations, what really stood out for me were sort of some key insights. It was very clear in the discussion, and we made it very clear during the ad hoc committee work, that in order to really drive lasting change around any of these issues, so whether it's homelessness, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's the child welfare system, you have got to address and own structural racism, institutional barriers that span both inside and outside of the homeless delivery system. And I think that's important too, right? Because people's experiences, again, are not monolithic. So it's not just what's happening in terms of the homeless delivery ecosystem, but it's what's happening in all the other ecosystems and how they are creating inflow or exodus from the homeless ecosystem. And I think that was important. I think the second thing is something I really sort of touched a little bit on earlier, but that you must have Black people, Black people with lived experience, and also trauma-informed and racial trauma-informed leadership involved in program design and program implementation and program evaluation and diversities at all levels. So that can't just mean the folks who are part of your street outreach team. That has to go up and down your leadership levels if you really want to see systematic change. I'm curious to know, like, how do you see your role in the future with continuing to address this racial equity work? You know, I, I often get asked by people, like, how has your work changed um, now that you sat on and participated in the ad hoc committee? The fact is my work hasn't changed because you can't wake what was already woke. Like I knew what the problem was. This is not new to me, 
This is not my first arrival on the stage, but I do think what is powerful for me is that now it's clear not just for me, but for other people who are engaged in the work and who are walking in the space. And I think you have people showing up differently now in conversations around Black people experiencing homelessness, both Black people and non-Black people and allies out there having real conversations about structural racism and the role that it plays and how you have to be having a housing justice conversation or we don't actually get to an end in a very real way, and I think that is powerful. It almost becomes validating and it becomes helpful, particularly again when you're talking about trauma, to not be the only person in the room that has to be speaking up and that has to be speaking out. So the work hasn't changed me as much as it has sort of reset me, reinvigorated me, and also brought allies standing alongside of me to continue pushing for things that I feel like I've always been pushing for, but now I feel far less alone. And frankly, the report makes me far more equipped to be able to go in places with data in hand and talk about why we need to drive change. And that, I think, is amazing. It almost is like I'm no longer tilting at windmills because now we all know that the enemy is real and that the issues are real and we know what we need to be doing. Can you kind of bring us into that moment when you had that eureka moment for yourself like, oh, I see what's happening. Early on in my career, I knew that structural racism was a problem. I've spent really my whole career often being the only black person in a room, often being the only black woman in a room, walking in with real estate professionals and having everyone assume that I was the assistant, not the project manager, because we're managing an $80 billion project. You almost can't walk in this space and walk in the shoes and not sort of understand what it's like. But after this committee, I remember sitting, testifying in front of the finance um, committee for Maxine Waters. Peter Lynn spoke before I did, and he gave the most powerful talk about how nothing that we're going to do to address these problems are going to work until we understand that structural racism is at the root. And I remember turning and looking at him and being like, see, that's allyship in action. And it was real and it was authentic. And since then, I've heard him in multiple settings, including today, talking about structural racism at the root cause. He has now used his platform and elevated a dialogue. And frankly, he'll walk in rooms that I won't walk in. And so it's so important for him to do that in an authentic way. And it also means that I don't always have to do it in every conversation that I'm in. And that, I think, is where there was real power and what came out of the ad hoc committee. So these are hard conversations, talking about race and addressing racial disparity and fighting for racial equity. You do a lot of work having these difficult conversations, standing up for yourself and standing up for other people. How do you take care of yourself? (laughs) I mean, honestly, no shame. I stay in therapy. And I encourage all women that I mentor, all the women that I come in contact with 
to believe and stay in therapy. There was an article that I read from the American Psychological um, Association, and it talked about how ethnic and racial groups experience higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, when you compare them to white Americans. And it just basically said that the simple explanation around that is racism, because racism in itself is traumatic. And that racial trauma is a result of sort of major experiences that you would think about in terms of, you know, workplace discrimination or hate crimes that are happening in communities. But it's also the result of sort of everyday discrimination and what might be considered small microaggressions that just continue to add up. That racial trauma, what it argued, is literally making black people sick. You know, you can see it in people showing up in the emergency rooms. You can see it in people not going to see the doctors or doing things because they're too afraid and health problems skyrocketing out of control before they can realize what's going on, not being able to get early detection mechanisms for things that, frankly, at this day and age should be simple and easily treatable. So understanding that that trauma is real I try to take very good self-care of myself, and that means finding time to step out of the work when I need to. That means seeking mental health professionals to help me make sure that I'm processing and that I'm not owning anyone else's bias because it is really easy to do that. And I do that not just for myself, but frankly, as I said, I do that because I'm a mother of two beautiful kids who need me in this world um, and need me to show up in the right way for them as their mother, but also as an example for them. And I also do that as a wife. So self-care I think is critical and I do think people need to get any help you need because this is a hard thing to manage on your own. And in getting help, how would you speak to the importance of the culturally specific services being able to tailor to the needs of those who do have those uh, hard ships with the thought of going to go and get services? I think you absolutely have to have people who have an understanding of racial trauma. I think it helps um, for me, at least personally. I like, I have two black women therapists and I like having two black women therapists. Um, It's not to say that you can't have therapists who are cross-cultural, but they really then need to have an understanding of sort of how you show up in the world differently and what that looks like. One of the resources that um, someone put me on to a year or two ago was um, therapyforblackgirls.com. And it's a list of websites where you can go in, you can put in your zip code, and it will actually tell you black therapists, for instance, in your area who are locally. And that's actually how I found the two women that I work with. Uh, So resources like that, I think, are critically important. I do think if you have someone who is not a black therapist or not someone of color, you do need someone who still has a great degree of cultural competency. So they're going to be able to sort of translate and understand your experience or you spend the whole time explaining things that frankly, you shouldn't have to explain. Yeah, it becomes a whole new therapy session. It absolutely does. (laughs) One way I thought might be nice to end, and I'm springing this question on you, Uh (laughs) but the whole podcast is about housing justice. And so I thought it'd be really nice to end just hearing about what housing justice means to you and sort of what your vision is for how we can work towards housing justice. Mm. 
You know, housing justice is about ensuring that people have home and community that is a safe haven, irrespective of race and class. And I think you cannot do that without approaching it from a reparations framework and a reparations mindset. And for me, that's how I want to show up in the world um, as I continue on this journey. Um, And I would encourage anyone, if you're really interested in ending homelessness, in disrupting generational poverty, if you're really interested in addressing the affordable housing crisis, then you have to acknowledge structural racism and you have to approach it from a reparations framework or we will never truly get housing justice. Well, Monique, we want to thank you for being our first guest on this podcast and for helping us to understand, like, where's that connection or that imbalance between the race and the homelessness crisis that we're experiencing. Is there anything else that you would like to leave us with? No, thank you so much for the invite, though. This was great. I appreciate it. Thank you. We hope that you'll keep listening. We hope that you'll subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends, tell other people about the podcast. We also are going to have a question and answer episode later in the season. So we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions you have. We have the email address housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Send us any questions you have so that we can answer your questions later in the season. And feel free to send us any comments or ideas as well. We are going out today with a poem by Michael Nelder. My name is Michael Nelder, and this piece is titled, Never Alone. So I recently asked Google, hey Google, can you give me a list of things that are supposed to be alone? And the only answers she could give me were, one, activities you could do so you didn't feel so lonely. And two, activities you could do alone, but only by choice. What happens when you find yourself alone, isolated, not by choice? Driving the car that suddenly breaks down after you've paid all of your bills. Being told you're getting let go because the company is downsizing after just learning you're expecting a new child. Receiving a call from the doctor explaining that you need emergency surgery your insurance doesn't cover. My friend who was a writer had to leave L.A. because her computer crashed. She couldn't afford a new one and her job required that she have a laptop. I cried once when my friend gave me 200 to make my rent when he told me, bro, It's okay to be human, to ask for what you need. Isn't it ironic that Halloween is the only time when we happily give to strangers? I imagine it is the only day in America where people experiencing homelessness would rather be monsters instead of ghosts. There's a saying, when we judge, it is only because we have forgotten. The muffled screams that remind us what it means to be invisible what it feels like to deteriorate quietly. If we continue to view people first through the lens of their condition instead of through the lens of their humanity, 
we will continue to be guilty of trying to end poverty on the same faulty foundation of isolation it was birthed from. I am convinced we are poor without one another. The grandmother who sent you the rent, the friend who co-signed on your loan, the secretary that passed your resume through. Anne Lamont said, my mind is a scary neighborhood. That's why I never go there alone. What if when we said we are ending homelessness, we understood it to mean we are ending people being away from each other in the moments when we need someone to be there for us the most. But if we continue to view each other first through the lens of our condition, instead of through our shared humanity, we will be guilty of trying to end poverty on the same faulty foundation of isolation it was birthed from. I recently read a 2019 study where a group of scientists left plants in a dark room and how 100% of the controlled plants grew toward the last place where they felt light. And I like to think humans are the same way. After we've been left alone long enough, we grow toward the last place we felt hope. For most of us listening, that space was home. The Housing Justice LA podcast is made possible by a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. The podcast is produced by Bill Lance with intro music provided courtesy of Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and amazing work on the CSH Speak Up program. Mm-hmm.